Lord, keep us from presumptuous thoughts of our own importance and give us a deeper understanding of what it meant for you to come to earth and set aside your glory and to model God's servant love for us even as we hear your word spoken and preached. A reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 27, beginning with verse 22, the Gospel of the Lord. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and took the reed, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. Two more mass shootings overnight in Dayton, Ohio, and El Paso, Texas. We don't know very many details at this point, but I can guarantee you that those shootings did not begin with angry, hate-filled gunshots, but rather with angry, hate-filled words that were spoken against people flowing out of an angry and hate-filled heart. Friends, the reality is that words can and do kill people. Choi Jinshil was considered one of the best actresses in South Korea. She was nicknamed the nation's actress. She played leading roles in 18 films and 20 television dramas. She appeared in 140 commercials and she won the 33rd Grand Bell Award for Best Actress. Choi's family was so poor growing up that her mother managed a, the household by running a small street st- stall that sold dumplings. And, and Choi dreamed of becoming a star in order to escape from her family's poverty. And so after high school, she began to work as a model in advertising before catching her first big break as an actress, first on television, then on the big screen. And everybody loved her. In 2008, a close friend and fellow actor of Choi was found dead in his car in an apparent suicide. Choi had been close friends with him for a long time. At his funeral, she appeared deeply shaken. And shortly after the funeral, rumors began to circulate on the Internet that she had also been not only an actress but a loan shark, that she had loaned this other actor a large amount of money, that he had become delinquent, and that she drove him ultimately to suicide. 
Word spread so rapidly online and in social media and internet fan forums and blog posts, comments of shock that Joyee's loan sharking had driven him to suicide, that she was complicit in her friend's death. On, on the 22nd of September of 2008, Choi sought a police probe into the source of these rumors, calling them groundless. Six days later, the police arrested a securities company employee for originating and spreading the rumors. Nevertheless, the rumors by that time had already taken on a life of their own as people sought to fill in additional details about this celebrated actress who had won every award and gained the affection of the nation all the while in reality being a cruel, bitter, heartless, wicked loan shark preying on other actors and driving them to their own deaths. The strain was overwhelming. She found friends distancing themselves from her. A cloud of suspicion and of contempt engulfed her. And on the 2nd of October, 2008, Choi Yi hanged herself, committing suicide at her home in Seoul. She was survived by her two children, her mother, and by a younger brother. The rumors turned out to have been false. Her life was destroyed by slander. We're going to look at a passage in the Bible in which the brother of Jesus, his younger brother James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, exhorts, pleads with, and warns the Christians that while the world might play in a way that speaks against others with slanderous words often untrue, That must not be the case among the children of light who walk according to the Spirit of Christ. This is James chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 10 through 12. It's the Word of our Lord. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Have mercy on us, Lord. What do we see here, friends? We see Jesus through his brother James calling us to guard one another's reputation with everything that we have. James is pretty blunt here in verse 11. Brothers, do not slander one another. The Greek verb here for slander means to speak against another. It's actually a broader category than our English term slander. To speak against someone is to use our words in a way that diminishes them in some way. It doesn't even really matter whether what you're saying is true or false. Saying true things that diminish someone else is also described in this passage. It's to, to speak down on someone, to speak against them, to deride them. It can include mocking them slandering them, defaming them, speaking in any way that diminishes their reputation. Do not speak against one another, brothers. Do not slander one another. Consider when the words spoken, however, are actually false. Uh, Some of you know what it's like to be accused of things. Uh, Some of you have been 
suffering a great deal on account of this in an era in which we're finally allowed to speak openly for the first time in history really about abuse and about corrupt power structures that have allowed abusers to continue their abuse. James is giving us in this instance a word of caution on the other side. Uh, I've been in this church for 25 years. It's a church right across the park from BJC and Washu Medical Center. I have known more medical residents, fellows, doctors, researchers than I can count. And through those years, I have watched a number of uh, people in the medical profession uh, face accusation, often false accusations of impropriety. I have been, I have walked with at least four different people through this. And in all four instances, internal investigations found that there was not only no abuse, but no possibility of abuse. And yet that's four people whose reputations were tarnished, whose professional image was damaged, whose careers and lives could have been completely destroyed. God hates abuse. We need to be clear about that. He also hates false accusation. Brothers, do not slander one another. Slander happens everywhere. Uh, you know, experts say there are certain hot spots. The notorious big four are homeowners associations. That includes condo boards. Uh, uh, K through 12 schools, small businesses, and you want to guess the fourth hot spot? Churches. Yeah, it's a responsive reading this morning. Everybody say it together. Churches. Uh, you know, big businesses usually have a hu- uh, an HR department, human resources department that, that keeps false, false accusations in check. You know, you just have to kind of go on the, the down low with it because you'll get in trouble with somebody. But uh, slander is particularly destructive. You know, there's a, a quote that's been attributed to everybody from Mark Twain to Winston Churchill uh, that a lie can be halfway around the world before the truth can put on its pants. These things just spread so fast, and and they're destructive. Uh, uh, Nicholas Carroll writes this. He says, to compare reality and defamation, when it didn't actually happen, which one is more traumatic, he asks, to accidentally run over your neighbor's dog and kill it, or to be falsely accused of running over your neighbor's dog and killing it? After 14 years of speaking to defamation victims, it's a no-brainer. Being falsely accused is far more traumatic. See, killing a neighbor's pet will distress any normal person. They'll, they'll occasionally think about it even years later. Uh, but on the other hand, the normal human will immediately call the dog's owner. They'll take the co- dog to the clinic themselves, and the history will read that it really broke their heart. They drove, over, they drove the dog to a clinic, but it was too late. But when you're falsely accused of it, it can become a running psychic sore, a daily source of stress, Every time you get a cold look from a neighbor or that, oh, you're the one who ran over your neighbor's dog and killed it. You know, every time you get that look from someone you've just met, when the story is fictitious, there's no need of you driving the dog to a hospital because the accident never happened. And where there's no crime, no alibi is possible. The destructive power of slander, it knows no limits, you know. Think of the surgeon that had to leave medicine for two years in order to repair bicycles. Think of the CEO that retired early because of suggestions of malfeasance that turned out to be untrue. Think of the leader who moved across the country to escape slanderous rumors. Think of the teenager contemplating suicide because the false things that are being said about her on Facebook. Brothers, 
Do not slander one another. Do not speak against one another. What's the bigger point? What does it look like when it's right? Uh, what is the good thing that he's trying to guard against when James writes these words to us? Um, you know, you receive this instruction when it hits you at the heart level. It means a lot more than just refraining from intentional character assassination. Uh, what does it look like to guard your neighbor's good name? Um, in the uh, 1640s, the Westminster Assembly drafted a larger catechism as a training tool for adult converts. And in it, it has a couple of questions on what the ninth commandment about, you know, not bearing false witness, what that actually means when you take it to the heart level and, and, and really think it through positively. It says this. Think about Facebook as we're doing, better yet, think about Twitter. <laughs> Question 144. What are the duties required in the ninth commandment? Answer. The duties required in the ninth commandment are preserving and promoting truth between people and the good name of your neighbor, appearing and standing for the truth, and from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in all things whatsoever. It means a charitable esteem of your neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering up of their infirmities. That means if you see your neighbor doing something you shouldn't be doing, the ninth commandment requires you to cover over, not spread the word. It's amazing. Guarding his reputation. Freely acknowledging their gifts and graces. Defending their innocency. Readily receiving a good report. Oh, you know what he did? It was something really nice. Let me tell you. No, no, tell me this. Tell me this. And an unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them. Do you know what neighbor Bob did? No, and I don't want to hear. That's what's required of the ninth commandment. That's guarding your neighbor's reputation. Readily receiving good reports about them, but being unwilling to receive an evil report concerning them. Discouraging, and finally discouraging flatterers and slanderers. Question 145. That was what's duties are required, what sins are prohibited, what sins are forbidden in the ninth commandment. Now, this is 400-year-old wisdom. Twitter didn't even exist at this point. What sins are forbidden in the ninth commandment? The sins forbidden in the ninth commandment are, according to people born 400 years ago who knew Jesus, all prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors. That's forbidden. It is forbidden uh, to have undue silence in a just cause. In other words, if you see injustice happening, you are required to speak up in order to defend those who are victims. Uh, Think of the black church in America and its principle that an, an injustice that's ignored is an injustice that's condoned. That's what the Westminster Assembly was communicating. Further, what's forbidden? Holding our peace when iniquity calls for either a reproof of ourselves or a complaint to others, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end, or perverting it toward a wrong meaning, or in doubtful or equivocal equivocal expressions, to prejudice of the truth or justice, speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, misconstructing intentions. Oh, how often do we do that? You know, take some something that somebody said, put it in a different context and make them look really bad. 
according to the Westminster Assembly, that's a sign of likely being unregenerate. It's that bad. It's that serious. Brothers, do not slander one another. Misconstruing intentions, words, and actions, flattering, vainglorious boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too lowly of ourselves or others, unnecessary discovering of infirmities. That's going on a fishing trip, looking for stuff, raising false rumors, receiving or countenancing evil reports, just receiving them, Uh, stopping our ears up against just defense, evil suspicion, rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy, that's being happy when your enemy crashes and burns, scornful contempt, and practicing or not avoiding ourselves or not hindering what we can in others, such things as procure an ill name. It's a mouthful. We see in this instruction a much larger calling. God is saying, I want you to guard the reputation of your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Guard the reputation of your brothers, of your neighbors, and of your enemies even. Insofar as it depends on you. And this is hard. Why is it hard? It's hard because we all have this internal desire and need to rescue ourselves, to validate ourselves, to save ourselves, to justify ourselves. It's that internal drive at self-salvation. That's why James zeroes in on, on judgmentalism as being the root of this external sin of slander. Verse 11, he, he speaks of anyone who speaks against a brother or judges them. Uh, he says, he, he, he then asks, but, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor, when you speak against your sister or brother in Jesus, you're speaking against them because you're judging them at the heart level. Uh, when you slander somebody, whether what you're saying is true or false, at the heart level, your basic posture is that you are above them, you are evaluating them, you are thinking that you are, are their boss, you're their, you're their judge, their jury, their executioner, uh, you're, you're, you're above them, you're superior to them, uh, they are beneath you for your evaluation. And it's an incredibly dangerous posture. I find that when I'm in conflict with somebody, this is the hardest thing in the world. Because the reality is, uh, if I'm hurting, I am evaluating them. And yet at the heart level, there's this warning. Be careful. Be very, very careful. It's a dangerous posture because if you're judging them, you're judging God's word. If you're judging God's word, you're putting yourself in the position of God himself. It's all together in James' mind. If It's why Jesus cautions us about evaluating people that we're not over. Uh, uh, and I'm not talking about coming alongside a sister or brother to, to say, hey, you know, um, when this happened, here's what I heard and here's who I think it might have hurt. That's not judging them. Uh, judging them is when you, you go and tell all the other people like a billboard how horrible they are. That's judging. Um, Jesus says, you know, when he gives the Sermon on the Mount, he, he, he mows the grass so tight to the ground. Everything's a sin. Everything inside of me is messed up and broken and sinfully wicked, and I need Jesus. And yet he turns around and says, oh, and this instruction that I've just given you, don't use it to evaluate other people. Use it to evaluate yourself. First, take the log out of your own eye. Judge not lest you be judged. Then, taking the log out of your own eye, you can help your brother with the speck in his eye. It's a helping posture. Uh, yeah. You know, you're not their judge. You're not their master. You're not their boss. You're not their jury. You're not their, you're not your evaluator. And so James is frankly a little hot around the collar in his words here when he says, brothers, you've got to stop slandering one another, uh, because you're judging them. And that's putting you in the place of God. 
And so why do we so quickly start evaluating or judging other people? Um, It's very often part of a larger system of self-salvation in which I'm trying to rescue myself. I have to validate myself. And therefore, in order to validate myself as one of the good people, not one of the bad people, there are two things I have to do. First, I have to minimize my own sin so I can be one of the good people. But then, so that I can show up, you know, so that I can show up as a contrast to everybody else, really these colors should be reversed. I need to make everybody else look as bad as possible so that I, in contrast, can look so good and so holy and so righteous. Um, this voice of self-salvation coming out as judgment of others, pointing out, seeing their faults so much more clearly than, than my own. It's that voice in the back of my head that, that, that maybe it's, it's constantly evaluating other people's food choices or how they worship or how they've gone about uh, their family uh, and taking care of their own. It's constantly evaluating how they raise their children, how they speak about their spouse, how they dress, what kind of house they live in, what kind of speech they use when they talk, that voice of self-salvation, constantly looking for their weakness and their failings. You know, does it sound familiar? Gosh, you are so slow. Would you get out of my lane? I don't like the way this person over here is driving. Look at her. Does she even know what kind of attention she's asking for dressing like that? Who plans these traffic lights? They are idiots. And then you finally get to your destination. You walk in the restaurant. There's nobody at the front desk. Obviously, the manager has no clue how to run a business. You finally get your seat. Would they ever come and take our drink order? Well, they came and got our drink order, but if they knew what they were doing, they would have asked for our food order too. You know, could they at least put five French fries on the plate and not four? Do they know how to run a business? Who are these people? Does it sound familiar? If that voice is in your head, understand that is the voice of trying to save yourself by maximizing everyone else's weaknesses and minimizing your own. It's hardwired into our DNA that has fallen. That voice of self-salvation needing to do this. And it's the opposite of the gospel. It's the opposite of being rescued by Jesus. I have to rescue myself and my words go toward that end. I've seen... Oh, friends go through divorces and custody battles, and boy, there is nothing that brings out the ugliness like a big, ugly custody battle. Because there, you're not just trying to save yourself, you're trying to save your children. And so, you have to make your spouse look as bad as possible and make yourself look as good as possible. Uh, I read these words from a guy who had watched this happen to his best friend. He says this, my best friend took his own life a couple of weeks ago. He was already depressed, but his wife during the divorce posted some really horrendous allegations about him, ranging from claiming that he was into child porn to accusing him of incest. She tagged myself and members of his family in all of her Facebook posts. The court didn't buy it and awarded full custody to him. But knowing that all these friends and family had read all this stuff and sent him into a downward spiral, He finally took his life a couple weeks ago. She had publicly humiliated him to the point that he couldn't bear it anymore. Sometimes, friends, when you see smoke, it's because there's a fire. 
Sometimes, friends, when you see smoke, it's because there's some brother with a smoke machine pumping out smoke night and day trying to make somebody look bad. And when you see that, understand they are trying to save themselves. They are trying to rescue themselves. They think they have to do this in order to be a valid person because their sense of being and significance feels threatened. It's self-rescue that drives the slander. And it's always been this way. I mean, Jonathan, you know, John Adams' organization called Thomas Jefferson a, quote, mean-spirited, low-lived fellow, son of a half-breed Indian squall sired by a Virginia mulatto father. You've got racism, you've got nationalism, you've got cruelty all thrown in here. They, and, 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 and further they added, he's an atheist, which was half right, a weakling, a coward, and a libertine. Meanwhile, Jefferson's organization got back by saying John Adams was a tyrant, a criminal, a hypocrite, and a fool. Trying to save themselves is trying to save America, using slander to do it. One source explains how this works. Character assassination is a deliberate and sustained effort to damage the reputation or credibility of an individual. The term can also be selectively applied to social groups and institutions. Agents of character assassination employ a mix of open and covert methods to achieve their goals, such as raising false accusations, planting and fostering rumors, and manipulating information. It happens through character attacks. Character attacks can take many forms, such as spoken insults, speeches, pamphlets, campaign ads, cartoons, and internet memes. As a result of character attacks, individuals may be rejected by their professional community or members of their social or cultural environment. The process of character assassination may resemble an annihilation of human life as the damage sustained can last a lifetime. For some historical figures, that damage endures for centuries. They may involve exaggeration, misleading half-truths, Manipulation of facts to present an untrue picture of the targeted person, it is a form of defamation and can be a form of ad hominem argument. When you believe that your political party, your candidate, your church, your organization, your nationality, or your race is what's going to save the world, then your drive at self-salvation will tempt you to assassinate the character of your opponents with your words, if not with bullets. And it's all driven by this drive to save myself. And it calls for humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord in verse 10. To humble yourself from your proudful need to rescue yourself. To humble yourself from your need to be one of the good people. To humble yourself from your lofty posture of superiority over others. To humble ourselves from presuming to be the judge to humble ourselves from presuming to be in the place of God, to humble ourselves before the Lord because He promises, I will lift you up. So how is it possible? There is future grace, friends. That promise, we looked at this last week, Humble yourself before the Lord comes with a promise that if you do, if you come to me with empty hands of faith saying, Lord, I don't know how to fix this, but I'm entrusting it to you. If you humble yourself, God is promising, I will lift you 
up. It's a question of trusting God for tomorrow's results and not taking them into my own hands. You know, in, in marriage counseling, we often see this intentional threshold that if you can get to this intentional threshold as a couple where you're both there, the likelihood of your marriage not only surviving but thriving becomes quite high. But the intentional threshold is when both a husband and a wife come to a place where they're broken enough to say, I am going to do whatever Jesus calls me to do, whatever he says in his word, no matter how hard it is, no matter how painful it is, I am going to trust him with this. And when a husband and wife, no matter how much they rub each other wrong, no matter how much their marriage feels like death, when they both get to that place and pass through that intentional threshold, they're both humbling themselves before the Lord, then God does lift them up. I've seen it again and again. It's an incredibly powerful posture of trusting God for future grace. Because friends, he's able to save. Says, yes, he's the lawgiver and judge, but he's also able to save. Um, you know, some of you are going through really hard stuff right now. And, and I see some of it and some of it I don't. Maybe with your, your, your family, with your health, with your career, with your relationships. Uh, do you believe that Jesus is able to save? Do you believe that He's able to lift you up and exalt you even in the midst of all of the brokenness? You know, because He's named you as family. We keep coming back to this again and again in James where James is always positioning our conflict and our tensions and our fears and our sins all in the context of being the family of God. He says, brothers in verse 11. That means you've been adopted into God's household and He has become your father and your fellow Christians therefore become your sisters and brothers in Jesus. In fact, by calling us all brothers, He's saying we all have an inheritance, men and women alike, because we all are, are, are the inheritor within Jewish law. Uh, you've been adopted. You weren't born a child of God. You were born again a child of God. It's John's Gospel, chapter 1. To those who believe in His name, to those who receive Him and believe in His name, He is, gives the right to become children of God. Children born not of a husband's decision, but children born of God. It's a birthright you have as one naming Jesus as your Savior, that you can go to your father and say, you are my father and I am your child. And a father, a good father, takes care of his little girl. A good father takes care of his son and sets his son up to thrive. A good father doesn't always shield you from suffering, but a good father will give you the resources and be with you and walk with you through that suffering so that you can come out of it stronger, knowing the Lord and knowing the love of a father. It's all true, friends. With Jesus, it's real. There's a better rescuer. A better rescuer than what our words through our own manipulations can accomplish. Because Jesus is the one who submitted to slander for our sake. The reading we just had of Jesus being mocked by guards, a crown of thorns pressed onto his head, guards pretending to bow down to him, calling for his death with the crowds, slandering his name and beating him. On the cross, Jesus was submitting to slander so that slanderers like me can go free. Gordon MacDonald tells a story. Imagine, this is my take on it, imagine you could go back to the first century and you are right there at the Holiday Inn in Capernaum and Jesus is there. Maybe it's the Hotel Indigo or the 
the Four Seasons, go in style, Four Seasons Capernaum. And, you know, we're all standing around, we're all in line, and we understand that big things like this have to be organized. Uh, you're in the conference center, and, and uh, so voice speaks up from behind the desk. Okay, when you come and you decide to repent, folks, we want you to register first. We'll get your name down on a mailing list. We'll give you a name tag so that this can all be personal for you. Just step forward, get in line, and tell us your first name and your most awful sin. Bob steps up. What's your name? Bob. What's your most awful sin, Bob? I stole some money from my boss once. Person takes a marker and writes on the name tag. Bob, embezzler. Next person, name? Uh, Keisha. Okay, Keisha, what's your most awful sin? I, I said some things about some people that maybe weren't completely true, but I, I didn't like them. So they write on it. Uh, Keisha, slanderer. What's your name? George. What's your most awful sin, George? I've been coveting my neighbor's Corvette. George, coveter. Hi, I'm Gordon. Gordon, what's your most awful sin? Well, I kind of wasn't completely faithful to my marriage. Gordon, adulterer. And, and, and the person writing, you know, with some degree of gloating, they're slapping the name tag on the chest of each person. And then all these people and all their name tags with their most awful sins, uh, you know, they're all, so everybody gets seated in the conference room and, and up to the table comes Jesus. Uh, oh, what's your name? Jesus. Uh, what's your most, oh, oh never mind. Um, so Jesus, you know, starts working the crowd. He's going up to people. He goes up to Bob. Hey, Bob, can I have your name tag? Uh, sure, and Jesus puts Bob's name tag on his chest. And, uh, Keisha, can I have your name tag? Puts Keisha's name tag on his chest. Uh, Gordon, can I have your name tag? Goes on Jesus. Soon the Son of God is covered with the name tags and the awful sins of all of his people. And someone comes up gently and says to Jesus, Jesus, is really nice what you're doing. It's very charitable. You're obviously a very loving person. But if you could take off a few of the worst ones, because if you're going to spawn a, a messianic movement, you're going to have to be above reproach as a leader. And, and why don't you just take off the one that says murderer and the one that says adulterer? Um, those, are, those are really despicable. Those are like the nines and the tens on the ten-point scale. Um, Jesus says, no, you don't understand. I'm the son of David. And David was a murderer and an adulterer of the worst sort. And um, I'm not going to kick him to the curb. And by the end of the day, Jesus is covered with all of the sins of all of his people through all of time. You know, as far as the east is the, from the west, he is taking your name tag off of you and wearing it himself. And he is the one who then takes all those name tags to the cross. And he turns slander on its head. Instead of throwing accusations on the innocent, he takes the blame of the guilty, puts it on himself, and allows it to crush him. He whose name was holy, letting his name be besmirched and dishonored so that slanderers like me can be honored. Friends, that's a savior. That's your friend. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being a friend of sinners. Thank you for coming to our aid and coming to us in our distress. When we were most ashamed, Lord, you are the one who bore the sins of the world that we might be blessed in your place. And so, Father, we consecrate this element the, the elements on this table to you, this cup and this bread, Lord, that you might preach good news to us who are poor, that we receiving your riches might overflow in blessing to our city and to one another. Lord, we look to you. Provide for us, we pray. 
and protect us from the evil one. Fill us with your spirit. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.